We'd like to uh, spend a little time about talking uh, about uh, the subject of returning to our daily lives and bringing the meditation back into our workaday worlds. Let me start by prefacing my and Carol's comments by saying that uh, no teacher that I know of has uh, has this completely down, and so all of our responses are. Uh, are incomplete. The book is still being written, so to speak. So, given that, uh, we can start discussing uh, from the point of view that each one of us have. And what I'd like to do is uh, just talk uh, briefly about um, the first two rungs on the eightfold path, first two steps, and. Uh, I think it will become obvious that given the right orientation to life, given the right attitude to life, that the practice unfolds in a moment-to-moment quality uh, just through our interfacing with that right attitude. So it's sometimes easier to start where we should start rather than to try to go just straight to Mindfulness and being meticulously aware, moment after moment, doing everything, picking up the coffee cup, opening the door. We lose that ability very quickly in the hubbub of a, of a very active and hectic exist, existence, unless we have the right attitude on which to approach our living experience. And so the first rung of Buddhism is right understanding, uh, having a, a sense of what the purpose of life is all about. And the purpose of life, as it's being conveyed through the television sets and movie screens, is very much based on quantity. That is, the more the better. The bumper sticker, the person who has the most toys when they die wins, uh, is sort of the way we govern our existence. Um, But in a more introspective level, that also means that we have to look at our own ambition, our own sense of gain, our own sense of priorities. What is it that we're, and how is it that we're approaching life? Are we approaching it on a quantitative basis? Uh, self-improvement is part of that. Uh, in very, very many subtle ways, we're involved in that competitive striving and it has left us rather poverty-stricken, inward poverty-stricken. And so at some point we have to change over or relook and reassess our lives so that we gain a renewed understanding and appreciation for qual- the quality of the time that we spend here on Earth. And that change, that flip from quantity to quality is really the movement from skillful to unskillful understanding. When we are focused on a quality, the quality of our life, then we start appreciation, appreciating ourselves in the moment as it's expressed in its fullness. We start expressing an appreciation for just being in relationship, regardless of how that relationship moves or the motivations for being in that relationship or whatever happens in eventually to that relationship. 
but just the bare expression of relating to someone else, relating to life, smelling the flowers, not trying to grow gardens and gardens of flowers, but being able to appreciate a single flower is really uh, a shift. And you can feel, I mean, you can feel the impact and the orientation, the posture that that would have if we would just embrace it. Now, given that right orientation, that right understanding, we have to have the right attitude that we bring to that right understanding. And that is the attitude of learning, of being able to say, every situation in this process, I have the ability to open to and to learn and to grow from, regardless of what what is happening. And so every situation is the optimum strategy for our own personal growth. There's nowhere else I need to go to grow when the opportunity is laid bare before me. And that means that all of the problems, the perceived difficulties that we have with people, with ourselves, with our job, all of that, all of our own personal suffering is an opportunity to to move in a different direction. Ajahn Chah used to say that there are two types of suffering. The suffering that leads to greater suffering and the suffering that ends suffering. And when we grow and open ourselves to those areas of ourselves that are less than complete, imperfect, we are moving away from these problems as being personal problems to being opportunities for our own growth. And so I leave you with that as being the main focus, the main intention, the main way that we should be leaving the retreat. And if you have gained some techniques which are helpful to you along the way about being mindfulness and mindful in the moment, then so much the better. Certainly for people who use their hands a lot, as we all do at time, from time to time, like in dishwashing and laundry, there will be that immediate groundedness and mindfulness. But to assume that we'll be able to carry that moment-to-moment mindfulness, that meticulous, careful attention in most of the ways we live is didn't prove true for me, but if you're able to do it, fine. I was just, I just needed a different, uh, a different uh, direction. I needed myself to say, okay, what's all this about now? What are we really doing here with this mindfulness? Mindfulness accesses ourselves, accesses our relationship so that we can learn from it. So let's go to the learning. And when we learn, we're already awake. We're alive. We have to be participating in that moment fully. And therefore, we are mindful. So it's to put the horse in proper relationship to the cart. The other thing that I would encourage you, if there was a word or a, um, a, uh, a description that rested with you, um, that rested well with you this weekend, like true and useful, or generosity, or love or learning, I would encourage you to take that word and to move it into your life, into a field of investigation, to see how deeply you could move with that word. Like, let's take generosity. 
All right? I think it's, it sounds, it resonates with me. I'd like to be a generous person. So I'm going to find out what it is that keeps me from being generous. I'm going to see if I can't make a life statement, a posture to the world that will be in terms of generosity, in terms of service, because it resonates with me. It feels like that's the way people should live. It's the way I should live. And so I move out into my life with that sense of generosity. And suddenly I feel myself very caught in my own problems, in my own selfish desires, in my own way of life, at the expense of everything else. And I look at myself and say, this doesn't feel generous. Now what is it that is inhibiting that generosity? What is it that's inhibiting my ability to, to serve and to reach out beyond that? And so we start looking at the things that inhibit that. And what we'll find, almost always, is that it's our personal suffering that inhibits our ability to listen and to move out beyond my own patterns. They talk about acceptance in dying. If I can just share with you a story about a nine-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis who was dying Frequently when people die, um, they get lost in their own drama in a way that keeps them or prohibits them from being able to, to listen or to reach out beyond their own pain, which is what our problems do in relationship to our generosity. But this young girl, nine years old, whose mother and father had just recently split up in divorce, and it was the divorce was um, instigated by the mother, but both the mother and the father had rejoined to, to come to their dying daughter's bed. And there was an, obviously a lot of pain in the father who was both suffering the pain of the separation and divorce, but also the pain of seeing his daughter uh, at the end of her life. And this young girl, and I had the privilege of being there, she said, uh, okay, I would like everybody out of the room. There was the mother, the father, and myself. I would like everybody out of the room. And we thought she was trying to uh, send people out of the room so she could die alone. She was craning her neck so that she could breathe uh, because in cystic fibrosis, the end stage, it's very difficult to pull in the amount of air that you need. And uh, we felt she was very close to dying. She asked everybody to leave. And she got up after everybody had left and drew a big I love you poster for her father. and then asked people to come back into the room and offered that to her father, reaching out beyond her pain to be able to touch somebody else's, even as she was dying. That's generosity. And that, we need to understand, is not available to us. And to be able to explore and to investigate why and what inhibits that natural expression of heart. We all have that natural expression of heart. Understanding what inhibits us allows that to occur in its normal and natural way. I leave you with that and my appreciation for all of us having been together this weekend.
since Rodney began with the first two steps of the Eightfold Path, I'll just round it out by talking about the, there's six more steps, but they're really two segments. The Eightfold Path is what the Buddha offered as a way of living that both actualizes our understanding of truth, of who we are, of our interconnectedness, and also a way of living that helps us keep waking up, that, as Rodney said, helps us keep investigating, helps us keep seeing to the roots of our experience, to the roots of our suffering, and why is the situation so difficult? Where am I attached and confused here? How can I touch the truth? And uh, so the second two, two segments, the second is three steps and the third is three steps, are both really fundamental tools, I would say, for use in our lives to help keep us awake. And the first three are dealing with basically our speech and our actions, our expressions of ourselves in the world, in our relationships with others, and really giving us a way to reflect back on ourselves how am I behaving? How am I speaking? And why? And what's the effect that my actions and speech have on others and that that has on myself? It's really back to those five precepts that we talked about at the beginning, but it's just simplified into wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. See, it's just including all the active aspects of our life and really giving attention to that. Why speech? How do I relate to others through my speech? When I use untrue or wounding speech, rather than making ourselves bad, to really look and see why. What was the, the deep inner pain in me that brought about this harsh response to someone or this actually untrue expression? Not again as I will never again tell a lie. I will never again bark at somebody in an unkind way. Please don't set yourselves up for that. It's not about that kind of rigidity at all. It's much more a pointing to let's use our lives to wake up. And let's use all aspects of our lives as a way to pay attention as a pointing to truth as an area to learn, as Rodney said. So this second portion of the Eightfold Path points to looking at our speech, looking at our actions. Basically, that's actions of harming, actions of stealing, actions of, those are the two big actions of misusing our sexuality in a way that's harmful to ourselves or others, misusing power, misusing authority. <clears throat> Basically, any action that harms another and seeing almost immediately, really feeling in ourselves that that harms ourselves. It, it really is working with our speech and actions. You can see how it actualizes the sense of our oneness with each other, with all beings. And at least in my experience, it's an infinite area of exploration, far more subtle than it would seem from just thinking, well, I just will work with not lying. I'll work with not killing. It's a very subtle area, one for, for ongoing investigation of our intentions, of our motivation. You know, because it's all about 
what do we mean? What's our intention in our actions? So if you're if you're walking and you don't see and you step on an ant and there's really no intention whatsoever to hurt that ant, there still might be pain in ourselves, compassion when we realize that it's been killed through our through our step and that's appropriate. But there's no need for blame. But then other times when we see a, a bunch of ants, it's, I, I can't be bothered to walk around, I'll just walk through them. It's a little different. And so we just look at how do we act and why? And how do I feel after doing that? You know, because I've done that and I feel so much worse than if I had just taken two minutes and walked around the ants. So we continue to explore. And with our livelihood, you know, how do we make a living? It really, the Buddha specifies this, you know, not making a living in arms trading, you know, or in selling, in selling uh, drugs. The things that, that obviously bring harm to people. And again, it's just, for, for me, it's been an ongoing exploration of really looking at what's my relation to livelihood, what's the truest expression of who I am and how I want to be in the world, and whatever we're doing, what's our intention in doing it? Of course, we, we have to have a livelihood to make money. Of course, that's part of the intention. But also, how do we actualize that? How do we relate to it? Can we... Whatever we're doing, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, something that seems socially really responsible or if my job is sweeping a driveway, if I'm taking care of kids, if I'm working in a supermarket. All of these relate with people, relate with our environment, and we can do that with an attitude of connectedness and caring. It doesn't matter so much what the surface livelihood looks like. It's much more our inner relationship to it. And as I said uh, on the first night, working and giving attention to our actions, our speech, our relations to ourselves and others is an indispensable foundation for a life of awakening. It's an indispensable foundation for being able to continue questioning really honestly. And as Rodney said, if you, if you have the attitude of questioning, sooner or later you start questioning how your actions and speech are and so it all works together. But really giving attention to this area lays a basis of harmony with ourselves, harmony with others, with life, with what is, that can help us continue to open in very deep ways to the potential for peace and happiness, for harmony in our life as it is now. And the last segment of the path is really sort of the tools, in a way, that, that we've been learning in the formal sitting and walking in mindfulness meditation here. Or the tools of mindfulness, concentration, and energy, willingness to give energy and commitment to our awakening, to our questioning, to caring about ourselves, really. And one of the things that it took me somehow years to get it, <laughs> really slow, is that, as Rodney said, mindfulness and concentration, that very careful quality of attention that lets us be 
somewhat microscopic and present and minute in our experience on a retreat, that level of mindfulness is not going to last most likely when you walk out of the door. When you start driving on the highway and reading the signs, you might make it a few miles before you suddenly have to turn on the radio. Or nowadays, talk on the phone. I was driving with a friend in L.A., and she's talking on the phone, switching lanes, drinking a cup of coffee, and talking to me. I was a nervous wreck. And then I saw everyone else on the freeway was doing the same thing. It was really scary. Well, but in other ways, you know, we can all relate. How often, if we're eating alone, do we have to have a newspaper to read or listen to the news or, or something? You know, just eating somehow isn't enough. But you can see here from eating what an incredibly rich and varied and full activity eating really is, if we would but pay attention. So in our daily lives, the same really quiet, microscopic quality of mindfulness is generally not available nor is the concentration, the real sense of one point in this, of just sticking with one thing at a time. It's available, but not in the same uh, degree that it is here. Of course, mindfulness is available in the, larger, in the larger lens of clear comprehension that Rodney spoke of. And the third quality, and the one that lets us be mindful, Wake up to what we're doing. Be concentrated enough to at least just do two things at a time instead of four. The one that lets us keep questioning, that turns difficult situations in our lives into potentials for growth, is the last aspect of the path, and that's wise effort. And this is what it took me so long somehow to put together. Maybe that's my particular bugaboo. Yours might be something else. In a retreat... We're putting in an immense amount of energy, of effort, through our willingness to look, to sit, to walk, to bring our attention back to the here and now, whatever we're doing, over and over and over. How many times in these three and a half days have you woken up and go, oh, I'm spacing out, and just gently come back to the walking, to the eating, to the sitting? That's effort. Just that willingness to see what's so. And when I do a retreat, I'll put in a tremendous amount of effort. And for years I thought then I could just walk out the door and cruise. That that was all you needed to do, and life just takes care of itself. And it just isn't so. What we learn on retreat is really what is possible for us as human beings. That it's possible, and we can develop that quality more, to be sort of, as Rodney was saying, be in the middle of the storm this morning and really have an island of peace. We can make touch that from moment to moment. And it's in our daily lives that the storms really rage. And it's so easy to forget that this too is the opportunity. This is a storm. It might be a lot more complicated. Instead of just me and my mind, there really are three other minds involved. Well, now that you know how complicated your mind is, Can you imagine what's going on when you get four of you together and you're all in some kind of a storm and you're all projecting and imagining and, you know, you don't even hardly know what's going on for you and you all think you're going to relate in some kind of a reasonable way? No wonder, you know, things can get so out of hand so quickly. I remember one teacher said to me once, you know, he said, the worst thing you can do, and we all do it, is 
how can you put yourself at the mercy of another person's mind? (laughs) Now that you know how crazy yours is, and we all do, you know, letting other people judge us and taking that in and accepting that is true. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. I didn't mean to get on that. (laughs) But the willingness to whatever's going on in our life, however difficult the situation is, to say, right now, that's the effort, is right now I can wake up. And the tool we have is just this mindfulness, this meditation. You can wake up, as Thich Nhat Hanh will say, just take three breaths. Just stop, take three breaths, connect with your breath, connect with your body, with this moment, and that can make a huge difference. A huge difference. You don't always can't say, let's have this argument after I go meditate for an hour. But we can say, let's just take three breaths and really connect with what is centeredness and start again. Really connect, let yourself connect with the other person, with their pain, their confusion, and start again. Sitting a little bit every day really helps us to stay in touch with this possibility. You can sit 45 minutes, if you can sit an hour, great. If you can sit two and a half minutes, great. You know, don't get into judging, you should be doing more, you should be doing more. Appreciate what you are doing, so that it's a joy rather than some grim duty. But there, there are many ways, and we can all find different ones, and we can talk about it a little now. We're going to ask if you have any questions about any of this. But we all find ways to help us continue to wake up, to help us continue to remember, how can I wake up in this moment? Or how can I at least just connect with this moment? And a lot of the formal meditation is in opening us to the possibility and also giving us some tools. So hopefully a little bit, that's what um, you might have touched this weekend. So what we wanted to do, rather than try and cover everything we could think of about coming back into your daily life or how to keep awake, um, is to see if you have any questions, and please feel free. Or if you've done this a lot, often uh, you'll have a lot more helpful things to say than we do. Because as Rodney said, everyone's, everyone has a slightly different experience, and I also haven't met anyone who really has it down. It's <coughs> what you do when you're always awake. So what, what questions or concerns come to your mind? I do, and usually that's from um, not really understanding one's boundaries and giving too much or giving in excess, and it's based upon often a need within oneself to feel appreciated through those through generosity or, or to receive something in return. And the generosity that I'm speaking of is really a life posture in which we know our boundaries very well and we know what those boundaries are, and we give what we can, and we don't what we can't. And we really keep that well-defined. And yet it's keeping ourselves on the edge of our selfishness so that we're always exploring how it is we can be more generous, but not to a fault. See? 
So there's always that edge. In every situation, we could always be giving more, but we're on the edge of what we can possibly give. And just to look at that edge and to see where it is that we're holding back and protecting ourselves and why it is that we need to do that and who it is that we're protecting and yet what we're able to give and share within that limit as well. And so that boundary becomes more transparent and permeable as we, uh, as we grow in the practice. Another question? You mean the, the sitting at night where I was leading the guy? Yeah, yeah. Um, in a way, it does go into the core of compassion. We, we make, and this a sort of a subtle distinction. So what I was saying last night, may I be happy, is, yeah, uh, or I deserve to be happy is also okay. <laughs> um, is we, I was talking about loving kindness, which is just a sort of unbounded love for yourself and for all beings. And... Compassion is really an aspect of that. Compassion is a little more specific in that it's sort of that love turned towards your pain or turned towards others' pain or their suffering. So in doing, there's actually is a similar compassion meditation where you would um, kind of focus on yourself or whatever other being and saying the words, you know, may you be free from suffering. And it's a little more tuned into the suffering aspect but with the love. Whereas the loving kindness, um, you feel that same wish for love even to someone who's really happy and doesn't seem to be suffering. It's kind of a, a real... Does that... Does that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll do it again uh, just at the end this morning. And uh, it, it, it can be quite peaceful and calming. And for some people, actually, the compassion aspect is more alive and more accessible, and that's fine. That's fine. Good. Yeah, Sandra. I sense ulterior motives to that. <laughs> yes, but is is that your question? Is there anything constant? I and I'm not trying to be flippant, but to to really examine your experience to see if there is anything constant. Um, I mean, my answers are through my own experience, and they mean very little to you unless. You've explored everything within yourself, your body and mind, to, to come to your own conclusions about that. One thing that we sense is permanent is a sense of some abiding soul or self within this process. And we haven't spoken too much about that this weekend, but that's worth a great deal of inquiry as to whether that is what we think it to be. And, and to examine that to see whether 
there is something back there that is maintains itself through time, unperturbed and undisturbed, or whether there are just qualities that come and go within a whole process that we call personhood. So I, I invite us all to inquire into that. makes a lot of sense and uh, I think both aspects are really vital you know faith is one of the really vital aspects of awakening you know the, the sense of trust and having to make an inference beyond our actual experiential knowledge or else none of us would ever even start looking and also gives us a sense of confidence and then uh, they talk about what gets added to it through our own experience our own experiential understanding then they actually call it verified faith, that it's no more because of something Rodney said or you just have a sense, but it's really verified from your own experience. And uh, both of those are really necessary. That makes a lot of sense. I think you answered it. I think it depends upon what your need is in a particular situation. There are times when sitting, I mean, your heart just longs to sit and to do long retreats and to and just to spend quiet time. And, uh, and it just uh, really calls out for that kind of urgency. And there's something that needs to be done in relationship to that sitting practice that, uh, that it's calling out uh, for growth in that area. At other times, uh, we feel very uh, alive and awake and active and energetic and, uh, and, and in movement, which is much of our life, most of our life, actually. And so if it just ended up that meditation was defined by the time we spent on retreat, then there wouldn't be very, it wouldn't be very useful, to be honest. So we have to be able to carry it out, uh, as Carol was saying, to interfacing with life and to, to experience how because there's a part of ourselves that uh, um, that doesn't get touched in the same way on the pillow as it does when you're talking to your mother. And oh, visit, oh sitting versus walking. I'm sorry, I was kind of going out there a little bit. <laughs> Carol, Carol keeps me in balance. <laughs> walking that. <laughs> Let me tell you about the universe now. <laughs> We'll move right along here. <laughs> uh, the walking meditation is an expression of meditation in movement. It's the bridge between ourselves in stillness and in activity. And, uh, and it's a way, it's, it's, the, um, 
it requires the same kind of effort to bring that same quality of attentiveness to ourselves in movement, perhaps more effort than we do in, in stillness when we're not moving. It's sort of naturally, you know, the body's at rest. It's a little easier to focus on. Uh, and you can spend, uh, if you have a half an hour a day, you can spend it walking if that feels more comfortable to you. Writer for your own heart and just spend it walking. Or you can spend it sitting if you say, oh boy, I just want to quiet down here. It's what calls out for you to do. And sitting and walking are equally as valuable at different times in anyone's practice. Yeah, in the back. Could you hear the question in the back? Yeah. The time of day, um, I, I do think it's a bit personal preference. I personally prefer to get up and sit first thing in the morning. And actually, it's nice if you can do it just before you go to bed, too. A little both times is, is good. I think the most important thing for helping have some stability of daily practice is to pick a time, a regular time, that you know you can do it, and a realistic amount of time. You know, now I'm going to sit two hours a day. It's really hard. But say if, if you know you get up and you can do it in the morning for half an hour before you do anything else, and you just make it a regular part of your day, I think that's the most the most helpful. And then that could be for 10 minutes over your lunch break. You know, I know people who go and sit in their car in the parking lot at work, really, and sit for like 10 or 15 minutes at lunch, and they say it really helps their day be much more balanced and focused. And the second part about sitting with a tape with affirmations, what do you mean by affirmations? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, if you're doing Vipassana, I wouldn't, since <laughs> that it's very much about just being with what is right now and not... Because even metta is like the closest thing to affirmations, I would say, but even that, it's trying to get in touch with the actual feeling as it's manifesting now. So for me, speaking from the point of view of Vipassana, I would have the sitting in silence and really just being with the breath, the body, the thoughts and emotions as it is now. Something that's really helpful is sitting with other people. Even if it's only once a week or once a month, it just gives some juice and sense of community to, to doing it. I'd just like to respond a little bit uh, about that cause. Uh, what I frequently do is look at areas of myself where... Um, there's some blindness, some some areas of selfishness, and and to give myself a positive affirmation is um, uh, such as um, I can listen to people, and just and so that when I'm when I'm starting to you know do ten thousand things and not really listen to, to just to have that to point me towards where I'm not listening and reawaken me to uh, my potential to listen can be real helpful. So just to share that. Yeah, but as Carol said, it's not, we're not, uh, what we're doing is trying to, in my way of using it, is trying to point myself towards the experience of of how it is that I'm not listening, rather than as some kind of mantra that I'm just, you know. Yes, hi. Thank you. 
I'm not sure I can say anything that hasn't been said this weekend because, um, I mean, there's no secret teaching here. It's been communicated as best we're able to in the course of these three days together. Uh, to understand, I think, that and to be patient with the process of coming to that point is probably more important uh, than any single thing that we do. To know that we're going to get stuck and we're going to react and to keep the attitude that as long as I'm learning from this, that it's not going to um, add uh, more reaction to that which is already there. That the right orientation to all of this that's going on in this very hectic uh, environment that I live in is to really work upon my own reactivity in that situation, and that ultimately will have the most benefit on my son. There is no, you know, little trick. But in a way, we can each find our own little reminders. So, for example, if there's a particular kind of situation that you call high drama, a way that you get sucked in, or a way that you feel, you can almost find a particular thing that works for you really quickly to get you back just for a second present. And the trick will be to remember it. To say, like I said before, take three breaths. For me, it's like if I just remember to bring my awareness back from out there involved in the maniac and just come back and drop into feeling my body, that's enough. It takes no time. It just takes remembering. you know. And then if you have one particular thing to do when you remember, it can land you in the moment. Oh, right, this is high drama. And once you know it's high drama, even for an instant you might have the possibility of choosing for this minute not to get involved in it because now you've recognized it's high drama. And in that moment, you're not a participant in it. And so, like, some people use the sound of bells or clocks to wake them up, or you could just use the fact when you say, oh, I can't stand this anymore. Oh, high drama. You know, and as soon as you can say high drama, right, just come back and feel your body. And just for an instant, you're out of it. And it expands from there. And you find your own ways to do that. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's no. I mean, it doesn't sound exactly mindful, but it sounds like. I mean, in this life that we live, we all need periods of time when we can reflect on situations, or when we can allow creativity to come up. I mean, um, it's true when you're sitting. Sometimes you get the most creative ideas, but people, you could be jumping up and drawing and writing the whole time and never have the quietness. But, you know, say you're an architect, you've got to go back and have a creative idea once in a while and be able to, 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 let that, to let that roll, you know. So this sounds like, in a way, a very conscious period when you're letting the subconscious and unconscious just, just roll in a very fluid and creative way. 
So, you know, you could, in a broader, very broader way, it's not moment-to-moment mindfulness, but you are aware of what's happening. You're aware that you're letting the thoughts run. You're aware that creative ideas are coming. You know, you're sort of present with that. And I think that's real important. It's, it's different from just, you know, the mind, as you say, chit-chit-chit-chit all the time. Yeah. Okay. So we um, just wanted to end with about a... 10 minutes or so of loving-kindness meditation together. So please let yourselves get comfortable. Stretch for a minute if you need to. So sitting in space here and now, feeling your body on the chair or the cushion, and just let your mind, your heart, your body relax. Relax into here and now. Just forget all the trying to create, to be, to be different. Just forget all the judgments and comparison. Even forget all the ideas about who you are all your self-identifications. And just feel yourself alive here and now. Without limitations or descriptions. Just a sense of living presence. In some ways, this living presence can manifest as loving kindness, all embracing, all connecting loving kindness. Again, by feeling the sensations in your heart center area sensations of life, living energy of the universe. And letting this living energy manifest as love, as a gentle friendliness, And let this loving energy radiate outwards and just fill your whole being. In a way, knowing that who you are is this love. How can you be separate from it? And loving yourself just as you are right now. It doesn't even make sense to have some limitation or exception on it. Just showering love filling your body.
And out of this deep love, wishing for yourself the deepest peace and happiness, that you would wish out of all-embracing love. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from suffering. May I live with a heart of compassion. Really deeply wishing this happiness for yourself. And you, as much as any other being in the universe, deserve it. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from suffering. May I live with a heart of compassion. And now you could bring to heart, to mind, the image of someone dear to you that you easily feel love for, not sexual and not complicated. Someone you feel a lot of love and appreciation for. Perhaps a benefactor, someone who's really helped you somewhere along in your life. And holding their image in your heart, feeling, directing this all-embracing, loving energy towards this person. Feeling in this love, the deep wishes for happiness for them that you would also wish for yourself. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be free from suffering.
may you live with love and compassion. Feeling how this energy of loving kindness encompasses our dear friend in the same way it encompasses us, no different. And just now, for a minute or so, if any other images come to heart, perhaps so people you're going back to see, family members, friends, co-workers. Just focusing on the, the parts of them that you easily love, on their so-called good parts, and then feeling this loving energy for the entirety of these beings. Really wishing, may you be happy, may you truly be happy. May you live in peace. May you be free from suffering. May you live with love and compassion. Connection through the loving kindness dissolves all differences, all judgments and separations. A connection from one heart to another, feeling our deep unity, really, our deep interconnectedness. And now let's include all of us here in this room, in the circle of this unbounded energy of loving kindness. Appreciation for the support we've given each other through our steady inquiry and presence. Letting this loving energy extend to the staff, the cooks, the maintenance, the managers, the office people upstairs, people in the front office. Everyone trying as best as possible to express their understanding and love. and letting the loving energy extend outwards in all directions. As the Buddha said, all beings only want to be happy. May it truly be so. 
Okay, all the suffering beings, people who are seemingly causing the suffering, people who are dying, people imprisoned, people who are sick or just being born, are all equal in that we only truly want happiness and peace. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. May all beings know true peace and happiness. May all beings live with a heart of love and compassion. May all beings know the truth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.